Welcome to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, inspiring centuries of progress. Those of you who subscribe to the podcast have spent the last five weeks learning a lot about neurodegenerative dementia, a family of diseases usually found in the elderly that gradually destroy the neurons, the thinking cells in your brain. The most famous and widespread of these is Alzheimer's disease, a terrible, debilitating, demoralizing, and ultimately fatal condition that affects hundreds of millions of people worldwide. Over the course of that series, we took a comprehensive look at what dementia is, what it isn't, what we know and don't know about what causes it, and why it's such an important and difficult problem to deal with. For those of you who haven't heard that series, you can find it on our iTunes feed or at www.nyas.org slash dementia decoded. And now, in a kind of extension to that series, presented by the Academy's Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science, we're going to look at a question that, at first blush, might sound impossibly optimistic, given how much we still have to learn about the basic mechanisms of Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. The question is this, is there anything we can do personally, right now, to help prevent ourselves from developing one of these diseases? Specifically, is there a way to help prevent dementia by changing what we eat? On March 26th and 27th of this year, the Sackler Institute convened a conference at the Academy in collaboration with the Nestle Nutrition Institute and Nestle Health Science of world experts from a variety of related fields that asked that very question. And surprisingly, some of the answers they offered were maybe so. Let's start with a couple of related facts that we explored in some detail in the Dementia Decoded series. First, that neurodegenerative dementias like Alzheimer's disease are illnesses, not just something that happens to people when they get older. Here's Dr. A. David Smith, Professor Emeritus of Pharmacology at Oxford University in England. There's a view around that Alzheimer's disease is an inevitable part of normal aging. And so people have said, well, if it's an inevitable part of aging, there's nothing we can do about it. It's all in the genes and you just have to accept it. But that is not true. Second, though we've been looking for many decades at the possible genetic causes of late-onset Alzheimer's disease, which is far and away the most prevalent type of dementia worldwide. So far, we've only been able to unlock genetic risk factors that account for a very small percentage of the millions of people who have the disease. While it's possible there's a blockbuster genetic mechanism out there yet to be discovered, it's also quite possible, and many would say likely, that other environmental causes are going to prove even more important. Here's Dr. Mia Kivipelto, Professor of Clinical Geriatric Epidemiology at the Center for Alzheimer's Disease Research at Karolinska Institute in Sweden. It's getting more and more clear that late-onset Alzheimer's disease is indeed a complex, multifactorial and heterogeneous disorders. And it's not only AIDS and genes, but it's the exposure for various environmental risk and protective factors throughout the whole life course that affects the risk. And in a way, it seems to be the balance between the risk and protective factors that accounts and affects when we get the disease and if we get the disease. 
Now, keep in mind, we're talking here about late-onset Alzheimer's. The early-onset kind has a very clear and well-understood genetic cause. But it's the late-onset kind that affects the vast majority of people who have the disease. More than 5 million in the United States right now, as opposed to around 200,000 with the early-onset form. And the thinking here is that if late-onset Alzheimer's is at least partially caused by non-genetic factors, then those causes would, by definition, have to be environmental, something you're exposed to. And if that's the case, then we should, at least theoretically, be able to prevent it. Here's someone we also heard from in the preceding series, Dr. Richard Isaacson, Associate Professor of Neurology and Director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Weill Cornell Medical Center. I am absolutely not saying in any way, shape, or form that you can prevent Alzheimer's. No way. can't eat a blueberry and prevent Alzheimer's. Not, not going to be that way. But 20, 30 years ago, you couldn't prevent a heart attack and you couldn't prevent a stroke. So in 2015, I'd like to talk about Alzheimer's and prevention in the same sentence, with the qualification that there is no magic pill, there's no magic potion, there's no magic anything, but there are incremental things that I believe we can do to reduce risk. So it's all about risk reduction, risk stratification, and clinical intervention. I think it's time. Um, I think it's time that we can do stuff. This view is supported by the fact that, as devastatingly fast as the population with dementia is growing, in some places, it's not growing quite as fast as was predicted. This tends to point to the idea that the people in those places are holding it at bay somehow. Here's Dr. Kivi Pelto again. There are now several studies reporting a decreasing age-specific uh, prevalence or incidence rates for dementia during the last 10 to 15 years in the Western societies. And in this way, these studies give to us indirect evidence that preventing uh, dementia may be possible, and it may indeed be a key issue if we want to, want to handle this epidemic. In the same way, it's a key issue for many other chronic diseases. With some of these other chronic diseases, like heart disease and vascular disease, one of the simplest and most effective steps someone can take to improve their chances of not getting them is to change their diet. The hope of everyone at this conference is that a similar set of easy dietary recommendations can be made that would dramatically reduce someone's risk of getting dementia. And everyone in attendance had a promising theory about where that list should begin. But where should we begin in looking at those ideas? Well, dementia is a disease of the brain. So let's start with the brain's favorite nutrient, sugar. Specifically, a kind of sugar called glucose. Glucose is the kind of sugar that makes up foods we call carbohydrates. Bread, pasta, potatoes, and so forth. What we think of as sugar, the sweet kind, is another kind called fructose. But more about that later. Glucose is a tremendously important nutrient because it's the body's most efficient source of energy. The various stages of processing it are a big part of the set of chemical mechanisms we refer to as our metabolism. And it's been known for a long time that metabolic dysfunction is a characteristic symptom of advanced dementia. Here's Dr. Lenore Launer, senior scientist and chief of the neuroepidemiology section in the intramural research program at the National Institute on Aging. Well, because your brain starts atrophying in different areas, and your brain is regulating a lot of the hormones, a lot of the metabolites, you know, glucose regulation. So um, 
so so eventually it winds up in in giving in leading to a, a an imbalance in your metabolism and you know the sequela are loss of weight um, changes in blood pressure changes in cholesterol level so they're you know there's the things that regulate healthy levels are the things that get dysregulated when you start to get brain atrophy recently scientists have begun to show that the opposite also seems to be true not only does dementia throw a wrench in the system that processes glucose problems with processing glucose seem to be a contributing factor to dementia this makes sense because dementia is largely a disease of the neurons the thinking cells of your brain and neurons use a ton of energy much more than many other cells in the body and as we just said glucose is your body's best most efficient source of ready energy here's dr stephen kunane professor and senior research chair at the Center on Aging at the Université de Sherbrooke in Quebec. Deteriorating brain glucose metabolism is very much present in Alzheimer's disease. Traditionally, it's viewed as, as, the, as the consequence of neuronal dysfunction. And I'd like to make the case that it's definitely going to, if neurons are failing, then the glucose uptake is certainly going to decline, but it can also be part of the problem. So it can be part of, it can be the horse as much as the cart. The good news is that the problem is specific to glucose. The bad news is that it affects just about everything because you've, you've got a problem with glucose transport. You've got a problem with converting after glycolysis, the pyruvates not getting into the citric acid or Krebs cycle. Uh, beta amyloid is accumulating and is contributing to that problem. It's affecting the production of neurotransmitters and it's reducing energy production. So the brain is suffering from that chronically, slowly, uh, and over, over many decades. I think it's contributing then to a vicious cycle it's contributing to the neuropathology, it's contri contributing to the synapses that are failing, and this is further reducing glucose uptake, which is affecting the, the, the neurons that are still functional, and we develop this uh, cycle of, of exhaustion. So we, maybe we have a chance to uh, do something about that. In the majority of people who have a problem processing glucose in their bodies, it has to do with problems producing a hormone called insulin. This, of course, is called diabetes, and it's one of the most prevalent and serious health problems in the world. Like Alzheimer's disease, it comes in two types, the less common of which we are certain is genetic. Unlike Alzheimer's, though, we have a really strong and agreed-upon evidence for a certain environmental cause of type 2 diabetes, the non-genetic kind, and that's the consumption of that other kind of sugar, fructose. Specifically when we add it to foods where it's not found naturally. So getting too much fructose in our diet from things like soda, candy, and desserts rather than from fruit. And studies seem to show that having diabetes, or even what's called pre-diabetes, meaning blood glucose levels that are higher than normal but not yet at diabetic levels, can contribute to dementia in at least two ways. Here's Dr. Agnes Floll. Professor of Cognitive Neurology at Charité University of Medicine in Berlin. 
Diabetes um, hurts the brain in two ways. So it um, impacts on the vasculature, of course, and we know this from cardiovascular disease, and macroangiopathy, for example, lead to brain infarcts. Um, it also le leads to insidious um, ischemia, for example, causing microvascular disease, white matter lesions on MRI, um, and so on. But it also hurts the brain directly, um, for example, by something called glucose toxicity. So um, there's a um, glycation, advanced protein glycation of membrane proteins and also oxidative stress. And if insulin levels are constantly high, particularly in diabetes type 2, of course, um, you have an increased secretion and a decreased breakdown of um, beta amyloid. So actually, um, the brain will, um, will um, show some negative effects um, by diabetes, both on the vascular and um, the neurodegenerative side, and the end um, make you more likely to develop dementia. Which brings us to another interesting candidate for dementia prevention perhaps doing it by first preventing vascular disease, also known as clogged arteries. We know that vascular disease can cause its own kind of dementia, having to do with not enough blood getting to the brain, again, preventing brain cells from getting the nutrients they need, not to mention non-nutritive things they need like oxygen. But many now think that there may be a vascular component to Alzheimer's disease also. Here's Dr. Launer again. Um, now, people are, it's much more clear that people, when they're demented, there's mixed pathology. There's not just uh, plaques or tangles in the brain. There's a lot of vascular disease and other neurodegenerative lesions. Um, so, and, and there's been um, now more understanding of the connection between the neuron and the vascular system so that people can actually start articulating what the relationship is between you know, having bad vessels and, and, and neuronal health. So the science is moving along that underpin, underpins the epidemiologic associations that we've been finding for a while. Here's Dr. Erwin Rosenberg, Jean Mayer University Professor of Nutrition and Medicine at Tufts University's USDA Human Nutrition Research Center on Aging. And so I think there are a number of, of uh, items of uh, evidence that, that uh, I think challenge us to think uh, of the nexus of nutrition, aging, and dementia uh, as, as something that has a, a significant vascular component. This opens up the possibility that all kinds of dietary choices that have been shown to have a positive effect on vascular health could also be helpful in preventing dementia. This includes a class of nutrient that has gotten a lot of press in the past few years, omega-3 fatty acids, famously found in oily fish like salmon, herring, and tuna. And in fact, some studies of people eating more omega-3s suggest a positive effect on cognition. Here's Dr. Katherine Tucker, Professor of Nutritional Epidemiology at the University of Massachusetts at Lowell. We found significant associations with omega-3 fatty acids and a series of different uh, cognitive tests. In this case, we're looking at wordless, wordless learning tests, immediate recall score, and you can see um, significantly higher scores with the highest tertile of omega-3 fatty acid intakes. And when we put the same 
kind of tests into those principal components and got out our memory and, and in this case an attention score, both of them were highly significantly associated with the uh, N3 fatty acids um, even after adjustment for all the different kinds of things that we could correct for. Now, it's important that we as laypeople keep a couple of things in mind when we listen to findings like these. First, when she says significant associations, she means significant in the technical, statistical sense, meaning large enough to be distinctly measured. In fact, the difference in the results of these tests between people who ate more omega-3s and those who ate less wasn't huge, just noticeable. Also, nutrition science almost always relies on epidemiological studies, meaning ones that look at data collected in the real world, not under controlled conditions in a laboratory. This makes sense because you obviously can't lock up a group of thousands of people and feed them a strictly controlled diet to see what happens. Often, these nutrition studies rely on self-reporting to determine what someone is eating. That was the case here. In this particular study, around 1,200 low-income elderly people in Boston, Massachusetts were asked about their diet and then given a battery of tests. Even in well-run studies like this one was, there are a lot of possibilities for the data to get skewed. People could be misremembering what they ate or even lying about it. There's a very real statistical phenomenon called social desirability, meaning answering questions how you think they should be answered rather than with the truth. Someone might be embarrassed that he ate a bowl of Twinkies for dinner, so he'll say he had grilled salmon with asparagus. And even if everyone is being honest, our memory isn't perfect. So mistakes can be made. Do you remember exactly what you had for lunch two days ago? Exactly what all of the ingredients were? Exactly how much of it you ate? How about yesterday? How about breakfast this morning even? And also analyzing the data is tricky because you can never collect all of the information about someone's life. There's just too much. So you can never say with certainty that the results you're seeing weren't due to some other factor that you didn't know to account for. Maybe the people who ate more omega-3 containing foods all have drinking water that comes from the same source, or I don't know, all use the same brand of shampoo. Maybe also there's something else in fish, something that we don't know about yet even, that's causing the effect that we're noticing. Good scientists do their best to control for issues like these, and so data from these kinds of studies is absolutely useful, but it's often not as definitive as it might sound. How to best analyze the data that's been collected from epidemiological studies is such a complex question that there are very often new studies called meta-analyses that combine information from older studies in hopes of finding new insights. Some scientists even spend their whole careers doing this kind of data mining into old studies rather than new work in the field. These kinds of questions about what is or what is not good data and how shall it be best analyzed are the stuff of scientific controversy. And nutrition science is a field that's full of controversies. There are often very strong disagreements between equally eminent researchers about the effects of various nutrients in our bodies. One of these controversies is currently swirling around the role vitamins, specifically the B vitamins, might or might not play in dementia prevention. This disagreement came to something of a climax last July, 
when a group of researchers at Oxford put out a press release based on a large meta-analysis they had performed on various studies relating to B vitamins and Alzheimer's disease. Here's Dr. Smith, who's also from Oxford but was not involved in this release, describing it. If you believe uh, the media, you will have read a press release that came out from my university, nothing to do with me, in July 2014, which the headline said, taking B vitamins won't prevent Alzheimer's disease. The Times of London made the same headline and several other news media uh, did the same thing. And the press release said, and I read it, taking B vitamins doesn't slow mental decline as we age, nor is it likely to prevent Alzheimer's disease conclude Oxford University researchers who've assembled all the best clinical trial data involving 22,000 people to offer a final answer <laughs> to this debate. Do scientists ever offer final answers? <laughs> well, apparently this, this does. This was a meta-analysis conducted by Robert Clark and his colleagues, Sir Rory Collins, and people and distinguished uh, epidemiologists in the clinical trial service unit. Many at this conference and around the field think that this announcement was premature, to say the least, and that the potential connections between B vitamins and dementia prevention are still quite an exciting avenue of research. Here's Dr. Rosenberg. The benefits in, with respect to cerebrovascular disease have not been explored uh, uh, adequately, I believe, and I think the, uh, the, the way in which some of those uh, trials have been, uh, uh, and especially the meta-analyses have been uh, described, I think uh, deserves uh, a good deal of, of further discussion. Much of the interest in B vitamins in relation to both vascular disease and dementia has to do with their role in the processing of an amino acid called homocysteine. There are dozens of amino acids that we use in the body every day, mostly as the building blocks of the proteins that are the primary substance of our various tissues and organs. Homocysteine is one that's created as an intermediary step between two other amino acids, one called methionine that we get from our diet, and another called cysteine, which is used to build proteins. And among the many things that our body uses B vitamins for is processing homocysteine so that it can be moved along that chain. If there aren't enough B vitamins in your diet, extra unused homocysteine starts building up and hanging around in your bloodstream. And this buildup has been linked, epidemiologically at least, to all kinds of diseases, including many that are related to dementia. Here's Dr. Smith. First of all, it's been associated with the initiation of cognitive impairment in normal aging, with the conversion of cognitive impairment to dementia, with the incidence of dementia and of Alzheimer's disease in populations, with an increased rate of cognitive decline in patients with established Alzheimer's, with increased white matter damage to the brain, with the, an increase in density of neurofibrillary tangles in the brain, and with an increased rate of atrophy of the brain. It doesn't prove it's causal, but it's very interesting. Dr. Smith and his colleagues have begun testing the idea that arises naturally from these studies. Does giving large doses of B vitamins to people reduce cognitive impairment? So we've recruited people with mild cognitive impairment and we gave, put them in a trial of B vitamins and the other half was placebo. 
and we followed them for two years, and we used brain scans as a way of following the disease progression, looking for the shrinkage of the brain, brain atrophy. And we found that the, uh, the placebo group, the brain was shrinking at, at about 1.3% per year, 1.4% per year, which is quite normal for people with malcognitive impairment, unfortunately. Uh, but the people treated with B vitamins, it was half that, 0.7% per year. So they really had done something about brain shrinkage. And although the, the trial was quite small on 200 uh, people, it, and it wasn't really, we didn't really think we'd seen effect on memory, we did. This is far from a settled question, though. And as with all problems of nutrition, it's a complicated one. One of these complications has to do with the different kinds of B vitamin. There are eight, which are identified by the numbers 1, 2, 3, 5, 6, 7, 9, and 12. Some of these also have names. B9, for example, is also known as folate. And it seems that finding the right cocktail of these different varieties is important to this question. Because too much or too little of the wrong kind might actually have the opposite of the desired effect. Here's Dr. Martha Claire Morris, professor of epidemiology and director of the section on nutrition at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. In our study, we also found that high fol folic acid levels increase cognitive decline in a large population. And this is in the U.S. Um, so I want to underline that they're not talking about everyone taking a B vitamin supplement, that there is potential that we don't understand yet that for people who have uh, lower B12 levels and they take the high folic acid uh, supplement, there could be some cognitive decline. So um, to underscore that. The, the second point is um, that there's a difference between dementia, an Alzheimer dementia, and cognitive decline. And my review of this literature, I'm really uh, convinced that there's little evidence to date to support that B12 is associated with increased risk of Alzheimer's disease, but that low folate status is. So there's um, uh, low B12 uh, can lend to uh, cognitive impairment and to cognitive decline, but the evidence just isn't there for Alzheimer's disease that I see. There have also been studies that have linked high levels of some B vitamins to some kinds of cancer. Here's Dr. Smith again. We are not claiming this as the final answer. That wasn't our one. <laughs> Nothing is final. What we want to do, please, NIH, EU, everyone, is to do a big multicenter trial of giving B vitamins to people with MCI, following them through to dementia to see whether or not you can prevent conversion to dementia. Another vitamin that's being looked at for possible effects on dementia is the odd duck of the vitamin family, vitamin D, which some have suggested maybe shouldn't even be considered a vitamin at all. Here's Dr. Cedric Onweiler, a consulting doctor in the Memory Center at Angers University Hospital in France. Vitamin D uh, should not be considered really as a vitamin, but, but more as a hormone, because it's not provided only by diet, but we can also synthesize vitamin D in the skin under the action of UVB rays. Vitamin, or whatever it is, D, is classically understood to have a crucial role in the growth and strength of bones, but now it's also being seen to be very active in the brain. 
Vitamin D uh, can be considered as a neurosteroid hormone because it can go through the blood-brain barrier and then bind to the vitamin D uh, receptor, which is a steroid receptor in the uh, neurons and also in glial cells in the hippocampus and also in the hypothalamus and in a general manner in the <coughs> cortex in all the um, subcortex and also in the spinal cord. And at that level, the vitamin uh, D exerts a, a number of effects, including the genetic regulation of a number of, um, of uh, proteins. So as vitamin D is involved in neurophysiology, um, we, we proposed some years ago that maybe age-related uh, hypovitaminosis D could be involved or could explain part of the um, cognitive dis uh, of a brain dysfunction uh, with aging and uh, especially with uh, cognitive decline and why not Alzheimer's disease. It's an interesting idea. And there have been studies that have shown a positive connection between vitamin D and maintaining cognitive abilities. But as with so many of these concepts, there just haven't been enough good studies to make any kind of real conclusions. Uh, we have only three randomized controlled trials uh, available now, and they all have issues, unfortunately. There is an improvement of cognition, but due to the design of these uh, studies, we, it's impossible to say if this improvement is linked or not to the intervention. So we still need more well-designed right, and well-conducted trials to, to make firm conclusions about uh, the effect, the possible effect of vitamin D on cognitive decline. And there are many other theories at this conference and out there in the world about specific nutritional interventions and specific concepts about nutrition that will help with dementia. Some think the microbiome is important. Some think we should be thinking about mitochondrial function. Some say that it's combinations of things making a whole diet that's the key, such as the famous Mediterranean diet, or others like the mind diet, the DASH diet, the heart-brain diet, and so forth, rather than any one particular nutrient. Here's Dr. Tucker. I think it's important to, although you may work on a single nutrient, to always take a wider view and, and think that when you do these trials, you give a single supplement. Um, it may affect, as we've seen, those people who are deficient, but other people may be deficient in other nutrients. Many nutrients are important for protecting the brain. When we're thinking about public health and what we should do, uh, we really need to think more broadly than a single supplement here or a single supplement there. What everyone agrees on, though, is that we need more data. More and better studies that find innovative ways to tackle those inherent difficulties in studying human nutrition, and are better funded and better resourced than studies have been in the past. Here's Dr. Kivi Pelto. As you know, what has been missing so far is the evidence from randomized controlled trials. And this is still the golden standard if you really want to verify the effect of the intervention. And it has been very difficult in our field to show these hypotheses in randomized settings. And new and better studies are being conducted now. The FINGER study, short for the Finnish for Finnish Geriatric Intervention Study to Prevent Cognitive Impairment and Disability, for which Dr. Kivipelto was a principal investigator, is a good example. It looked at more than 1,100 people over the age of 60 
and whether a routine of healthy eating, exercise, and cognitive training for two years would help prevent cognitive decline. This study had good results for the regime they tested, but the data has yet to be fully analyzed. And some might say that because they tested all of those interventions together, it might be tough to say what results are from the nutrition element and which are from something else. And so there's a big question in front of anyone who is dealing with dementia in their lives or in their medical practices right now, which is to say hundreds of millions of people. While we're waiting on more conclusive data about some of these nutritional treatments, do we know enough to actually make recommendations to people who are suffering from dementia right now? Some say yes, some say no, and some say that because we're dealing with a debilitating and ultimately fatal condition, we need to do something. And it's okay to recommend things that we aren't sure are effective, so long as we can say with some certainty that they aren't harmful. Here's Dr. Smith. It's very risky to extrapolate from a single trial, small trial, however convincing. And that is not something you should base your public health actions on. But if what you do is safe and without harm, then there is a case for it. And uh, my Swedish colleagues, Johan Luck, for example, in, in the Karolinska, he actually wrote a little piece about this a couple of years ago, saying that patients come in, they get diagnosed with MCI, he measures their homocysteine. If it's above 11, he gives them a prescription for B vitamins because he tells them there's nothing else we can give you until you get dementia, and then you can have an anti-dementia drug. And as we've heard in the preceding series, those currently available anti-dementia drugs are themselves of only limited effectiveness. But despite the limitations of the currently available anti-dementia toolbox, the threat of dementia, especially for those with a family history of it or a genetic predisposition, is very real, very present. And the people who are facing it can't wait. As we said, Dr. Isaacson runs an Alzheimer's prevention clinic here in New York meaning he's actually working on the ground trying to put the limited knowledge we have about using things like nutrition to prevent dementia to use right now with patients. I'm ready to. Um, I have no choice. Uh, it's The time is ticking. We hit them with anything and everything as long as it's safe. It's kind of like a, a war. I'm, not, I'm a very peaceful person, but you need the Air Force and the Marines and the Special Forces and we hit it from every angle. We assess biomarkers. Um, we absolutely address a distinctive nutritional requirement uh, in the brain, and that's glucose hypermetabolism. There's a variety of ways that we do this. Uh, we also treat homocysteine. If you have high homocysteine, the evidence is overwhelming to me. I've been convinced Drs. Refsum and Smith uh, convinced me again yesterday that B12, B6, and folic acid in my patients that have elevated homocysteine, it works. That's my opinion based on the evidence. Uh, we treat low vitamin D. Um, Omega-3s, flavonoids, well, which is which? How many blueberries? A half a cup several times a week. What do we do? Is it through fish oil? Is it through fish? I always recommend through the foods, but sometimes we can't get patients high enough. So these are the things we address. We comprehensively assess and address dietary patterns in our patients. This is, I believe, the holy grail. And then finally, of course, we assess and address metabolic markers. And I look at glucose and insulin, and maybe insulin's not the right thing, but we're looking at it um, and we look at all sorts of uh, things um, because it's again you have to hit this with everything we can while dr isaacson and others are out there fighting the good fight against dementia with what we know now it's important that we keep arming them with new and better strategies and the only way we'll do that is to keep doing better research here's dr morris it's important um, i think that we look at 
individual nutrients, food groups, and diet patterns, this literature has to evolve together. They tell us different things. They verify findings. Um, if you find associations with a food group, it's important that the nutrients in that group also are associated with the dementia outcomes. The consideration of level of the nutrient or status of the nutrient is so important for us to advance the field. Um, and we need to continually think about a, a diet that is specific to brain functioning. Um, our RDAs, our healthy eating index, our general um, indices of good healthy eating don't take into account the brain literature to any um, sufficient degree. Um, and we need to have dietary intervention trials, not just one or two, we need to have many, because there's so many things that we need to explore and adjust. Hopefully meetings like this one, that bring together all the different corners of the field to share findings, compare notes, and work together to build better trials, can play a crucial role in solving these problems and bringing us to better preventative treatments for this terrible disease. Thanks so much for listening to the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. This episode was produced by your host, David Hoffman, interviews conducted and additional research by Carrie Kasten, administrative oversight by Dr. Amy Baudreau, Associate Director of the Academy's Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science. The event from which the material in this podcast was drawn was presented by the Sackler Institute in partnership with the Nestle Nutrition Institute and Nestle Health Science. You can find an Academy e-briefing of that event, including complete audio recordings of presentations given and their accompanying slides and multimedia at www.nyas.org slash NutriDementia hyphen E-B. Special thanks to the experts who appeared in this episode, Dr. A. David Smith of Oxford University, Dr. Mia Kivi-Pelto of the Karolinska Institute, Dr. Richard Isaacson of Weill Cornell Medical Center, Dr. Lenore Launer of the National Institute on Aging, Dr. Stephen Kunain of the Université de Sherbrooke, Dr. Agnes Flohl of Charité Medical University, Dr. Katherine Tucker of the University of Massachusetts at Lowell, Dr. Erwin Rosenberg of Tufts University, Dr. Martha Claire Morris of Rush University Medical Center, and Dr. Cedric Onweiler of Angers University Hospital. For more information about the programs of the Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science, visit www.nyas.org nutrition.